0: Now we're going to look at a moment in Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 5, verses 1 to 20, and I'll read that in a moment, but just let me uh, introduce what we're going to say and what we're going to look at in this way. It's partly to do with what I said to the children, that the Gospel is about freedom, And there's a freedom that's destructive and that kills, the freedom of a child who is released from a restraint and is allowed to walk into the middle of the road. And then there's a freedom that truly liberates, and we are going to look at that. For those of you who are not Christians, I hope you will come to see and know the freedom that is in Christ. But for those of us who are Christians. We're often like the Galatians, that having uh, begun, we're foolish, having begun in freedom, we fall back into bondage again, and sometimes we, we feel as though that is the case, and that's what this passage is about, and it's what we're going to look at. So, let's read together the Word of God, Mark chapter 5, verses uh, 1 to 20, and uh, we will read this, and Brian… Uh, introduced something when I was away. Brian, honestly, I'm going to have to watch him, but he was… no, he was spot on. It's absolutely correct that we should do this. It is the preaching and the reading of the Word of God that works our life, and this is the Word of God. It's not just the Word of man, and it's good for us to acknowledge that. So, I will read Mark 5, verses 1 to 20, and uh, we'll finish by saying this is the Word of the Lord, And if you could just respond by saying, thanks be to God, because we are grateful to God for giving us His Word. We're not left to humans just to make it up. Mark 5, then, from verse 1. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet Him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, "'What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Swear to God that you won't torture me!' For Jesus had said to him, "'Come out of this man, you evil spirit!' and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man, and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your family. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how He has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. This is the Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, this is Your Word help us to understand and to apply it. Give us attentive minds, give us open ears, open minds, open hearts. Give us, O Lord, uh, discernment and wisdom, and help us to be doers as well as hearers of Your Word, for we ask it in Your name. Amen. Okay, this is a a very strange story at one level, and yet uh, at another level it just just makes so much sense. takes place in the early evening. Let's just go through exactly what happened. The uh, lake that He was crossing, Jesus was crossing, was uh, five miles wide. The disciples had crossed it during the storm. When they had crossed over, this was after the calming of the storm, the area that they came to had lots and lots of caves in the limestone rock. And sometimes, actually, these caves were used as tombs. It was a This is early evening, it's pretty spooky as it is, and this story goes on to tell about this man accosting them, man with an evil spirit, a man who lived in the tombs, a man who could not be bound, a man who cut himself with stones, a man in just a really desperate condition. It's the fullest account that we have in the New Testament of what people would call uh, exorcism, though it is far 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 removed from the kind of exorcism you see in cheap horror films or even expensive horror films and it's a it's an interesting link between the previous verses about Jesus calming the storm because here it is about Jesus dealing with and calming this very wild and uh, strange man i was trying to think of the nearest i could think of somebody who was like that and then i was going to name you but no, I can't do that. Um, But when I was growing up, I used to be terrified. You know how when you're a child, my parents were theologically sound enough not to have the devil as a kind of bogeyman, but we actually did have a bogeyman who lived down the cliffs from us. His name was Tex, and apparently he had a pact with his horse that whichever died first would eat the other, and his horse died. So as far as we know, he had fried horse steak and stuff, And, and he lived in the caves. And we used to cycle down there and I I used to think, oh, watch out at night, texts will get you. You know, it was just, it was a little bit eccentric, shall we put it that way. Um, Well, this man was a whole lot more than eccentric. If you went across the lake and you were in the tombs and this guy who couldn't be bound came screaming and yelling at you, you, it's just, it would just be absolutely horrendous. I hope as we look at this, you are going to see that there is some connection between you and I and this man. We may not want to see that, but I, I hope that we will. So well, let's look first of all at the man himself and his desperate condition. We know that he was a Gentile. He came from the other side of the lake. Uh, in old days, if you lived in this area, if you're from this area, Fife's just across the water, but being a Fifer is very, very different from being a Dundonian. It wasn't the bridge that connected and so on. So, it's almost a similar type of thing that he was just across the water, but here there was a different nationality involved as well. He lived in the tombs. To the Jews, that was unclean, but what was also unclean was that the people from the area looked after pigs, and the Jews would not look after pigs. So, basically, he is a man who is polar opposite from many of the people that Jesus is... uh, grew up amongst, and he's polar opposite of certainly many of the religious people. He is on the other side of the lake. He's of a different nationality. He is unclean. And even amongst his own people, he is exiled. No human being could help him at all. Matthew, in his account of this, tells us that the man was a danger to other people. He is the kind of person who nowadays we would have sectioned and put away because he was a danger to himself. He cut himself, and he was a danger to other people. People tried to tie him up. They did try, in a sense, to put him away, to make him safe, but they couldn't do so, and it says here the reason why was because of his extraordinary strength. Verse 4, he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him, and the reason being given for that strength is that it was a demonic strength. It was a superhuman strength. Uh, if you look down at verse 9, it says, my name is Legion. A Roman legion was four to six thousand men strong. And what is being said here is this man was possessed by many demons and that that gave him his extraordinary strength. Now, there is a problem here already for some people because you look at this and you say, yeah, right demon possession. doesn't happen. Why not? What makes you so certain and so sure it doesn't happen? Part of the problem is some people take their understanding of demon possession from Rosemary's baby and the exorcist and that kind of thing. Some people have had bad experience of Christians who go around thinking that demons are everywhere, demon of laziness and a demon of this and a demon of that, and they blame demons for everything and, and uh, understandably react against that wrong teaching. Some Christians who are very soundly biblical and so on in many, many ways will say, yes, there were demons in Jesus' day, but there aren't gem- demons nowadays. And again, there's absolutely no warrant for saying that at all. I, I think that's what people would like to believe. I was listening to Rosemary Dowsett on the radio this week, and she was talking about arguments about the cross, and she said, you know, in Africa and in Asia, one aspect of the cross that they're surprised that we don't emphasize in the West so much is the fact that the cross, on the cross, Christ became victor over the demons. He expelled the demons. He defeated the principalities and powers. It is is a huge part of New Testament teaching about the cross, but we just kind of skip that one by. And that's because many of us, the whole idea of the demonic is something that is far, far removed from our experience. We don't want it. We don't want it to be true. Now, The Bible, uh, and not just in biblical times, but obviously in biblical times, but much of the world today as well, people did believe in demons. They did believe that there were such things as uh, evil spirits, not angels, but there were spirits that did harm, that were agents of the devil, and so on. A modern Western mind is going to say, yeah, they did that because they didn't understand. They didn't understand about mental illness like we do. They didn't understand about." Part of the thinking behind that is, of course, that we now know so much more. Uh, that's very, very, very doubtful. Of course, there have been and will be many instances where people will attribute to the devil something which can be explained in another way. But that does not mean that there are no demons. Because sometimes things are misunderstood, it doesn't mean that there are no demons. And and I remember as a very, very young Christian asking my Uncle John, who was a missionary in Zaire, and good, solid brethren missionary, you know, just sound as a pound. and, And I asked him about the demons. And of course, there weren't demons now, were there? And he just looked at me and he said, well, you obviously haven't been to Africa. He said, there are unquestionably demons. And the Bible doesn't give any indication that that is not the case. And even growing up in the north of Scotland, I remember one time uh, a group of 15, 16-year-olds playing with a Ouija board, and one of the guys got so freaked out that he ended up jumping out the window and almost killing himself. It was in, uh, in up in Dingwall. I just thought, no, there's there's there's, there's something actually real about this. And the the more I've gone on in life, the more I realize that you've got to come to this with a balanced understanding, and the balanced understanding is the teaching of Scripture, but there is definitely a demonic. If it was just madness, if the man was just mad, how do you end up with 2,000 pigs throwing themselves off a, a cliff? What, did he just transfer his madness? That's just not how that works in this. I think the problem is that we've got a lot of people who are very, very snobby and very proud and superior. And, and I tell you what we're like we're like somebody who's lived in the desert all their life and does not believe in the possibility of ice because they've never experienced ice. You know, we are. Some people have never experienced or known, and I hope, in a way, that that's true—that you would you would never experience the demonic. It's not Christians who walk around trying to see the demonic everywhere and looking for the demonic are being unbiblical. Paul backed off from it as much as possible. You don't want to see the demonic, but you can't say that just because you've not seen it, it doesn't exist. And there are many, many people and many testimonies, and it fits very well with what the Bible teaches uh, that there is a demonic influence in this world. Well, this man was possessed by demons. That was his major problem. But look how it affected him. He was, it was an agony. He was in agony. It tortured his mind. He cut himself. Day and night, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. You know, it's so bizarre that we now have a situation in Britain where instead of moving into a more rational and reasonable society, we now have a society in which the police are being told they can have up to eight days off to celebrate pagan holidays or witchcraft, whatever. You've got to have a witchcraft chaplain in the Navy or something. I mean, as though all religions were equivalent, and therefore you have to treat all the same. No one, I hope, is going to argue for the stupidity of witch hunts and things like that but the notion that as long as it's spiritual, it's okay, is crazy, absolutely crazy. Satan is cruel, and his power is for evil. I think it was Martin Luther who said, no prayer is complete which does not contain a petition to be kept from the devil. Of course, the devil is going to assault us and attack us. I think that a lot of us as Christians don't believe that. And we've never experienced it, because the devil has no reason to attack us, because we are useless soldiers. We're asleep in the Lord's army. But you begin to stir things up, and you will begin to experience the reality, not the pretense, but the reality of spiritual warfare for yourself. This man was attacked in his mind. He was in bondage. He, was, he couldn't escape. He couldn't get out of where he was. Now, I'm going to argue that that is true of all of us. I'm not saying that all of us are demon possessed. I want to to argue, by the way, and we're not going to go into this, but I don't believe that a Christian can be possessed both by the Holy Spirit and by a devil. And I I don't believe that if you if you find yourself, for example, in a situation where you have an addictive habit or so on, that you're necessarily going to say that's demonic. It might just be sin psychological, a whole bunch of other stuff tied in with that as well. But I am going to argue this, that there is a more subtle way for the devil to be at work. Uh, And if you can, turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, and you'll see how Paul explains that for everybody. Um, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. As for you… You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Not for a minute could you say that every single person in the Ephesian church were people who had uh, worshipped occult gods or got themselves involved in the demonic directly. Not every person in the Ephesian church was demon-possessed or or had been demon-possessed. Probably very few had been. But Paul says, every single one of you, you were dead, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, you followed the ways of this world, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. In other words, the devil does not need to possess people in order to control people. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. He is, if you you want to get a much better understanding of how the devil works, read C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters, because it's a genius uh, piece of literature, beautiful piece of literature, but a genius argument in so many ways, and it shows a great understanding that Satan works through our weaknesses and our sins to attack Christ and His kingdom. The classic example of that is, of course, the Apostle Peter, who was not demon-possessed, And when Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said, blessed are you, Peter, on this rock I will build my church, the rock rock being the confession that Peter had made. Jesus then goes on to say, to tell about what was going to happen to him at Calvary and on the cross. And Peter says, no, Lord, that's not going to happen. You're not going to go there. It's not going to occur. And Jesus turns to Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. Because the man who had confessed Him with the clearest confession so far in the New Testament, the clearest confession of any of the disciples, was a man who within minutes was being used by the devil to seek to dissuade Christ from his, his course. The, our, our enemy is a roaring lion. Our enemy is a subtle snake. Our enemy is someone who goes around seeking whom he may devour. Calvin says this, though we are not tormented by the devil, yet he holds us as his slaves till the Son of God delivers us from his tyranny. Naked, torn, and disfigured, we wandered about until he restores to us soundness of mind. And here is, for me, the greatest madness and image of all is that we do not believe and we do not trust and we do not accept Jesus Christ because we are imprisoned in our own minds to a form of thinking which binds us ultimately, to be on the devil's side. An image that I think is a really good picture to help us understand this. Most human beings, it, 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 Gresham Machen in his book, Christianity and Liberalism, he talks about what he calls liberal Christianity, and by that he doesn't mean open and generous. He's talking about a Christianity which distorts and waters down the Bible, And he says, basically, liberal Christianity consists in exhortation, which basically goes along the lines of, be good, be kind, help people, and so on, love God. And yet he says, what liberal Christianity does not do is it does not recognize that fundamentally, at core and at heart, we are rotten and not able to do that, that we are imprisoned, that we are trapped. And what we end up doing is, if you think that you can live your life like that you are the equivalent of someone who's in a prison and you think that you are making your life better by decorating your prison cell with tinsel you're still in the prison you're still trapped but you put a bit of tinsel on the window or on the bars and that's what people do when they become religious without getting really to the heart of the matter and that's what people do when they live their lives and and you know they have a nicer house they they they're married, they have children, they have a job, they have their music, they have food, they have all these different things, but ultimately all of it is only tinsel on the prison cell. What we need is we need the prison cell to be broken open. We need the bars to be ripped apart so that we can be free. That's what this man needed. He is an extreme form, an extreme demonstration of where we are as human beings. And his problem also is our problem too. You would not invite this man to a dinner party. You would cross the street rather than meet this man. He was unlovable. He was alone. He was beyond human help, but not beyond God's. By the way, I find this very, very encouraging when sometimes you're dealing with people and you think, I I can't help with this. In fact, the more you go on as a Christian, for me anyway, the more you realize how helpless you are really to help other people. It doesn't make you cynical. You want to help other people even more, but the, the powerlessness, and sometimes there are people for whom all hope is gone, all hope is gone, and, do and, and, you know, sometimes you actually need to let people get to that stage. Sometimes you can help people to the extent of you're, you're trying to assure them that their prison cell is not a prison cell and that if the, they can break out of it whenever they want, but they probably do need to come to an end of themselves in order to see that they they need Christ. He was beyond human help. We notice then the great love of Jesus. Jesus loved him, and he pitied him. The man came to him. Look at verse 6. He saw Jesus from a distance. He ran and fell on his knees in front of him, There's a person. You talk about split personality. He's desperate to see Jesus. When he gets to Jesus, the demons within him shout out, what do you want with us, Son of God? Now, instead of seeing the power and authority of the demons, we see the power and authority of Jesus. They recognize who Jesus is. They call Him the Son of God. They seek His permission. He asks the name. Name was important. It was deemed important to understand and grasp the name, almost a kind of name and shame type thing. And he casts these demons out into the pigs. Now, let me just divert just a little second to deal with something here that, that seems to me bizarre. Bertrand Russell wrote a very famous essay, The Atheist Philosopher, Why I'm Not a Christian. And one of his major reasons for not being a Christian was that Jesus was cruel to pigs. And that's from here, okay? Now, there are people, I mean, and I've and met people who say, wow, that's, this is terrible. Okay, I have two responses to that. First of all, did you have bacon this morning, or will you ever have bacon? If you did, then you've got nothing to say, okay? Or if you're going to have pork, and so on. But secondly, there is a reason for the the pigs, that being involved, and what was involved with that. It is to show the value of the man in contrast with the value of the commercial product that was being farmed. And these pigs, by the way, were being farmed to be killed. They were being farmed for pork. They weren't pets that the people were looking after because they, were all, because they loved pigs. That's not the reason. And Jesus is showing to the people of that area, and he's showing to the man himself, your pigs may be your livelihood. This man's life is far, far more important than, than him. The key thing is not what happened to the pigs, but what happened to the man. Look at verse 15. They saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. He was totally transformed in body, soul, and mind. And that's the, the again, just reflects the power of Jesus Christ. I think that we, we just don't grasp how wonderful it is to be set free by Christ. Machen puts it this way, God's own Son delivered up for us all, freedom from the world sought by philosophers of all the ages, offered now freely to every simple soul, things hidden from the wise and prudent revealed unto babes, the long striving over, the impossible accomplished, sin conquered by mystery's grace, communion at length with the holy God, our Father which art in heaven. The whole thing is just so amazing and so liberating and so wonderful. Wesley's great hymn, my chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. And whether the person is a drug addict or a demon-possessed, manic, or a nice, respectable, religious person who seems to be in their right mind, all of us need the freedom that Christ brings. Now, there are three reactions to Jesus. One is from the demons, send us among the pigs let us go into the pigs. That's what they asked Jesus, and Jesus says, okay, go. I don't think they anticipated they were going to be destroyed in that way. The second reaction, though, for me is the fascinating one in verse 17, where the people, after seeing this incredible thing, began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. The news is announced in the cities. People come from the towns and villages around to see this man. Everyone knew who he was, the maniac who lived in the tombs, who cut himself, who nobody could bind you're really scared if you're traveling from one village to another. And he's sitting there dressed and in his right mind. Now, at this point, you would expect people to say, wow, isn't that incredible? That's what we would say. We would say, imagine if we could have somebody who was like this, and then they, they were in our church, and they became a Christian, and they were dressed in their right mind. Wouldn't everyone in this whole community go, wow, isn't it incredible what God does? I'd love to be a Christian. That's not what happens. The people plead with Jesus to leave their area. And he does. And as far as we know, we have no record of him ever returning to that area again. Why? Why did they do this? Maybe they were annoyed about the pigs, it was a lot of money for them. Or maybe they were just scared. Their comfortable lives had been disrupted and disturbed. You see, they could say about the man, he's nuts. They could say about him, he's not one of us. They could say about him, he's insane. They could shut him out as that madman who lived in the tombs, but when he's brought to his right mind and challenged with the power of Jesus, and they are challenged with the power of Jesus, they then have to admit that they are in bondage too, and they don't want to be seen in that way. They don't want to be upset. They don't want to be challenged. They don't want to be made uncomfortable. I have my own beliefs. Leave me alone. Jesus go, get out of here. I've seen that several times in people. When people who moan about the church and say, oh, I'm not interested in church, it's really boring, and so on, and then they come along and they begin to taste of the power of the Word of God and they begin to experience something, instead of them reacting by bowing the knee and by saying, I accept Jesus and I want to know Jesus, they break into a sweat and they say, this, I'm, I'm out of here. I'm gone. I don't want anything to do with this. They're upset. It's like you can have a conversation with somebody, you can be getting on well with someone, and then something that you say really, really hits home, not because it's offensive, not because you're being obnoxious, but it just gets too close to the bone. I have my own beliefs, leave me alone. We're dealing with a real Savior, and He really does speak to us and challenge us. Verse 18, look at the man himself. How did he react he begged to go with Jesus. And Jesus said to him, no. He said yes to the demons. He said yes to the people. He left, did what they wanted, but he said no to the man because he was told to stay and to witness how much mercy God had had on him and how much the Lord has done for you. Go and tell them. Go home with your family and tell them what the Lord has done for you, how He's had mercy on you. Sometimes what we want, even though it's good, we do not get. This man, his own home, was his first call upon his attention. The hardest place to be a witness is in your own home. The hardest place to be a witness is in your own culture. The easiest place, in a sense, to be a witness is to go somewhere else where nobody else knows you. Because then you don't have to explain things. You can, you can, sometimes you can pretend. Home is the place where the reality of grace must be most clearly seen. And here the reality is this. Whether we've got a story to tell or not, what has the Lord done for us? Come and listen, all you who fear God, Psalm 66 verse 16 says, let me tell you what He has done for me. The Samaritan woman, she went back to the people of her town and said, come and hear a man who told me everything I ever did. And this man is being told, go back and tell your people what what I have done for you. It's interesting because he's from this area called the Decapolis, the 10 Cities in the Greek area included Gadaria, Philadelphia, Damascus. Largely independent cities, results of previous conquests by Alexander the Great. They had Greek gods, they had Greek temples, they had Greek amphitheaters. The people spoke Greek. And what's important about that is this: it was a key area if you were going to reach other parts of the world. It was the crossroads roads of the world. A man called Philo- Philodemus, an Epicurean philosopher, Theodorus, the tutor of the Emperor Tiberius. Menippus, the satirist, and so on, the cultural uh, figures, cultural icons, politicians, philosophers, and so on, had come from this area. And this man is told, you go back and you be a witness in this area. He was to be the first seed of a great harvest because the church would spread to Damascus. It would spread into Turkey and Greece, what we now know as Turkey and Greece, the Greek-speaking areas it would spread throughout the whole mediterranean and greek would be the language through which it was done not aramaic not the language that jesus spoke not hebrew it would be done through greek lord i want to go with you please let me go with you can i be one of your 12 disciples no you go back into your own area and who knows but when paul and barnabas went to these cities the christians were the disciples were first called christians in antioch who knows that the seed sown by this man bearing testimony to what Jesus had done was not the cause of that massive growth that was to occur so rapidly in the Christian church. Now, you apply that in terms of ourselves. What has God done in liberating us? He set us free. Why has He set us free? He set us free to serve the living God. Go home and tell how much the Lord has done for you. I think this story indicates to us that we are to be where legion is. We are to be where the devil is most active and where the need is most obvious and greatest. The foundation of the Salvation Army said his aim was to set up a rescue shop within a yard of hell, not to run away from it. That's why we have to aim to bring hope to the hopeless. That's why we adopt the the message of Isaiah that Christ proclaimed. He sent me to preach good news to the poor, to set the prisoners free, to proclaim the Lord's salvation. If you're a Christian you have been set free, and it is your aim in life. Your freedom is not for self-indulgence. Your freedom is not, oh, isn't it wonderful, I can just chill out. It's not, it's not what Lewis calls, and Machen both call, paradise freedom. On this earth, it is battle freedom. It's freedom to be involved. It's freedom to get hurt. It's freedom to get your hands dirty. It's freedom knowing that it doesn't matter if you personally fail or succeed, you still have the freedom and the liberty to live for and to proclaim Jesus Christ. And you've got, we have got to grasp that mentality. I can't nag this into myself, never mind into you. It's impossible to do that. But when I grasp what Christ has done, it changes the perspective on absolutely everything. You know, we have a freedom, for example, just now. I'm going to give this as an example. And I, it's one of many, but this is one anyway, and you can think of others that maybe apply. We have a freedom in this country, and we have a freedom in our culture at this moment in time, and because of the circumstances and everything else, a freedom to tell the good news to people who will never ever hear it otherwise. And that is freedom in terms of um, the children and the young people. It was brilliant last Monday to have the Monday Club packed to start with. Uh, the nightmare, of course, was having three of us there and um, having it split into different age groups and kids talking about wanting to come to Sunday school. And you know this, the hard part of having to say, well, I don't know if we can do this because we won't have enough teachers. You know, the scary bit is I think that we could reach hundreds, and, and I'm, I'm not actually exaggerating this, I think we could reach hundreds and thousands of children and not just children, but older people as well, because there is an openness, because there is an opportunity. The harvest is great, but the workers are few. And where are the workers? There's hundreds, thousands of workers in Dundee and Christian churches. What are we doing? We're getting ourselves back into bondage again. We forgot that we've been set free to serve. It sounds like when you're asking people to serve, even small things like making tea and coffee after service, oh, it's bondage oh, do I have to do? Of course, it's bondage, if you're going to think of it like that. There's a whole lot worse bondage than that coming your way. I'll tell you what the greater bondage is. The greater bondage is in not being liberated to serve, and not being free to serve, and being bound up all the time by, the, oh, it's duty, it's duty, it's duty, it's duty. No, no, it's not duty, it's love. It's what Christ has done for us that we share then with others people were amazed. He says, the people were amazed, amazed at the greatness of Jesus, amazed at His power to heal, save, and deliver. Where are the people in Dundee who are amazed at what Jesus is doing in our lives? They don't know. They don't hear. They don't see. Sometimes, yeah. And we thank God for that. But we need liberated. We don't need to go back into bondage? And, you know, here's a simple question. I'm going to finish with this, and it's a question for those of you who are not Christians, and it's a question for those of us who are. And please think about this question. Please pray about this question, and, and be serious about it. Be serious, because if you come along tonight, you, you'll see um, what God wants us, wants in us. The most important thing He wants in us is not to be hypocrites, He wants us to be for real. Be serious about this question, because it has enormous implications. The question is this, do you want to go with Jesus, or do you want Jesus to go? And I'm saying this whether you profess to be a Christian or not, do you want to go with Jesus? Lord, in the the somewhat trite cliche, where you lead me I will follow, what you feed me I will swallow. Fine whatever it is, Lord, I'm, I'm with you all the way, all the way to the cross. All, I'm with you. I'm following you, whatever it is, whatever you want me to do. Or are you actually really going to say, Jesus, go away. Stop bothering me. Even as a Christian, I'll call on you when I want you, when, I'm, when I need you. But right now, my life is too full of too many hassles to have you come in and interrupt and disrupt it and make me uncomfortable. Jesus, go away. Now, I know no Christian's really going to say, Jesus, go away. We're not going to say it with our lips because we're liars in our hearts. We say it with our actions. We say it with our emotions. We love so many other things, and we're really saying, Jesus, go away. Please don't do that. May God grant that we would hear His Word. Let's pray. Lord, bless Your Word to us. Set us free to serve You. And Lord, as You open the prison gates, as You Break apart the bars, as you take away the things that oppress us. Please don't let us sit in our prison cell and refuse to move and to walk in a spacious place. Help us, O Lord, to walk in liberty. Each one of us, we ask it in your name. Amen. Psalm 124. Let's.